Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. Commercial subsidiary. Of the BBC. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast. The podcast that'll be here until the end of time. I'm Emily Knight. In this episode, we're asking, does anything really last forever? And our journey starts on a quiet, sandy beach, 100 million years into the future. Strolling along this beach is, well, let's just say it's someone. Maybe it's a human, although what humans will look like in 100 million years is anyone's guess. Perhaps this is an alien doing the walking, or perhaps an Earth species evolved out of all recognition. But don't mind that for a second. This person, this entity of the distant future, saunters along, squinting down at the pebbles under her feet. She's looking for something. She kneels, let's just assume she has knees, and picks up a smooth, round object. A hard, black stone, rippled with a curious and quite beautiful texture. It's a fossil. A relic from the past, from the beginning of the 21st century. Perhaps it was something you dropped a hundred million years ago. One can certainly imagine far future geologists or paleontologists or archaeologists scratching their heads over the kind of things that we will have left fossilised, which will last for perhaps even billions of years into the future. But what is it? What kind of traces will our civilization leave behind? It is a big question, and it's one that we're studying right now. We know that even delicate, fragile things from the past, leaves, twigs, uh, bones, even feathers, can be fossilized in the right circumstances. I'm Jan Zalashevich. I'm a geologist and paleontologist at the University of Leicester. Rocks and fossils is my trade, from very old to very young. The strata are just layers of sediment. You can imagine layers of sand on a beach, layers of mud at the bottom of a pond or lake. And as these build up and up over time, they will form layers which eventually can be hundreds of meters or even kilometers thick. And those layers of sand and mud can include anything that was around at the surface at the time. Mineral fragments, remains of animals and plants, which become then fossilized, you know, within the strata. The strata forming today will include whatever we're throwing away, including plastic fragments of all different shapes and sizes, fishing nets, plastic piping and tubing, PVC window frames, through to smaller bits of plastic, bottles, bags, crisp packets, plastic fibres that we keep shedding from our plastic-based clothes, microbeads from cosmetics, right down to the smallest fragments, and they'll form tiny plastic-like fragments in the strata that are forming today. It's simply geology carrying on as it has done for billions of years on Earth, forming strata, 
But this time, these strata are including all of the weird and wonderful and geologically new things that humans are making. We call them technofossils, fossils of technological objects. Let's take um, a ballpoint pen. We each get through hundreds or thousands of those in a lifetime, and so they will wind up in these future urban strata. I'd imagine a ballpoint pen, first it probably won't be translucent and clear any longer. The structure of the pen will turn black. It may well be flattened by all the weights of strata above it. But the ball of the ballpoint pen might preserve, because that's made of tungsten carbide, and I'd imagine that even the ink might preserve within the plastic fossil. If one goes to Lyme Regis or Whidbey and hunts for Jurassic fossils, one of the classic fossils is a kind of fossil cuttlefish shell. It's called a belemnite. And those had little ink sacs. And one can find preserved ink sacs from more than 100 million years ago. So one can imagine a black, compressed, flattened fossil of a biro with maybe running down the middle of it a little strip of some kind of different colour which will represent the ink that was within the plastic. Most of our clothing is plastic, polyester and so on. Those will make complicated shaped fossils, you know, they will crumple in different ways. You might well preserve a pattern representing the weave of the fabric. That would be like, you know, representing the texture of a fossil leaf, which can be preserved in fine detail. And you look with a, a microscope or a hand lens and you'll see traces of the original weave of this plastic-based fabric. I've become interested in this idea of the Anthropocene, the idea that humans are changing the Earth's geology. It was a term introduced by a man called Paul Crutzen, a Nobel Prize winner. He said the Earth had simply been changed too much by humans for us to carry on calling it the Holocene Epoch. Plastics appear to be one of the big parts of these human-made changes. A tea bag. Tea bags are about 10% plastic. You can imagine that there will be little round, flattened, fibrous structures, which again, far future paleontologists might scratch their heads over, little realizing that us humans you know, made a habit of drinking a drink made out of leaves of a plant held within a bag which was 10% plastic. Plastic is currently everywhere, but it could be that the age of plastic is relatively brief. It's only been around, really, for around 50 years, and it's possible that its reign might be a short one. Hopefully plastics, you know, will become replaced by something which will be less easily fossilizable. you know, simply because we look after it better, we recycle it more, and we can convert it you know, back easily into, if you like, the stuff of nature, uh, so that it will become less, <laughs> if you like, of a future fossil. But that's someone strolling the beach a hundred million years from now, looking at the fossilised remains of a ballpoint pen or a tea bag, what might they think about us? There really are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of different kinds, you know, of techno-fossil. So one will say that humans uh, were terribly ingenious at being able to make all these different kinds of things, even if one couldn't work out what they were for. We might also think, uh, as a biologist, that this species was also terrifically careless, you know, in that it made all these extraordinary things and just scattered them, you know, across the earth uh, in such large amounts. Using fossils, which might just last forever, is a great way to find out about animals which didn't. Creatures which had their time on earth long ago 
and then, for whatever reason, went extinct. We find lots of remains of these species that used to be alive, and we can grind them up in the lab and extract their DNA. This is Beth Shapiro. And I am the co-director of the Paleogenomics Lab at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Beth delves into the lives and deaths of animals from the distant past to try and help animals, which might be at risk today. And we can ask what it is that makes some ecosystems more resilient to the types of changes that are predicted to happen in future. But when people hear that Beth extracts the DNA from the remains of extinct animals, there's usually only one question they want to ask. One repeated theme that we constantly hear from people when we publish this results is, so, you know, I see you can get DNA from bones of things that used to be alive, so does that mean you're going to bring extinct species back to life? <laughs> One of the very first things that happened when people first realized that DNA was preserved in animals after they died was Jurassic Park. Um, in fact, when Michael Crichton wrote his book, he acknowledges the lab at Berkeley for giving him the idea for Jurassic Park, which is funny. We now know that we can't get DNA from dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are all rocks. The only things that we can get DNA from are things that died more recently than that. In fact, the oldest DNA that's ever been recovered so far is from a horse bone that had been continuously frozen something like 700,000 years ago. So this brings us to cloning a mammoth. Of all the animals that used to roam this planet, the huge insects, camels the size of bungalows, the dinosaurs, the dodo. Few capture the imagination quite like the mammoths. Huge hairy behemoths, ice age monsters, 15 feet tall. Occasionally, here in the UK, we find their bones. Just last year, some road workers building a new bypass, the A14 between Cambridge and Huntington, if you really care, dug up a mammoth leg bone about the size of a five-year-old. It's hard not to get excited thinking about them walking the same land that we now live on. And the idea that we could bring one back to walk the land again feels irresistible. But could it be done? When people think about cloning, what they think about is this very specific scientific process called somatic cell nuclear transfer. This is the process that brought us Dolly the sheep a couple of decades ago. And it is pretty cool what they can do. So somatic cells are a type this of cell... This is pretty complicated stuff, but I'll boil it down to its basics. You start with a cell, a somatic cell, which is really any cell in the body apart from sperm, eggs or stem cells. A skin cell or a liver cell. In the case of Dolly the sheep, it was a mammary cell. In the nucleus of these cells is the DNA, the complete code for making a new animal. But a somatic cell can't make a new animal. A somatic cell can only make another somatic cell. A skin cell can make another skin cell. A mammary cell can only make another mammary cell. So then, they take an egg from another animal, preferably the same species, but a close match would also do. And they removed the genetic material from that egg cell, so it was an empty egg cell. And here comes the clever bit. They put that mammary cell next to that empty egg cell, zapped it with a bit of electricity, the membrane in the egg cell opened up, and the nuclear material from that somatic cell dumped in there. Bingo. You've got a brand new egg cell. 
ready to go. That cell then starts a process of developing and dividing and you can find a surrogate maternal host that can then carry those to term and that's how Dolly the sheep was born. So if we translate that to cloning mammoths or any species that's been extinct, the key thing is that you have to find that living somatic cell, that completely wonderfully intact living cell that you can start with once an animal dies, all the DNA that's in those cells, they start to decay right away. The DNA starts to be chopped up into smaller and smaller and smaller fragments until eventually there is nothing left. And so the truth is there is never going to be a living mammoth cell that is found anywhere. And so cloning a mammoth is not possible. It's never going to happen. However, there are scientists who've been trying to think of other ways to do this. There are several different labs who have managed to piece together the genome sequence of mammoths. And it's like getting a giant trillion piece puzzle, one tiny piece at a time, right? And we also know the genome sequence of the Asian elephant, and that's the closest living relative of the mammoth. In four billion letters, that's how long the elephant's DNA code is, there is about a million and a half differences between an Asian elephant and a mammoth. They would then go through the elephant genome and use genome editing technologies to find all those places where they're different, cut out the elephant version, and paste in its place the mammoth version. So gradually, one or two changes at a time, you would work your way from a cell in a dish in the lab that has 100% elephant DNA to a living cell in a dish in a lab that has some mammoth DNA. Now, having cells growing in a dish in a lab that have a little bit of mammoth DNA is a far cry from having a mammoth. And so when people ask, when are we going to have this mammoth de-extinctified or whatever horrible word you choose to use, it depends what you are willing to accept as a mammoth. If something that is 99.999% elephant is okay with you, as long as it has like a little bit longer hair or thicker subcutaneous fat, then maybe that's possible within the next decade or so. But if you want something that's 100% identical behaviorally, physiologically, and genetically, then I think the answer is never. We are much more than the sequence of the A's, C's, G's, and T's that make up our DNA code. We are, in fact, a combination of our DNA and the environment in which we live. And the same would be true for any mammoth or mammoth-like organism. Once a species has gone extinct, then that species is gone and can't be brought back. To my mind, we really need to focus on preserving those species that are present today. There are, we know, certain populations of corals that are more resistant, less likely to experience bleaching in higher acidity or warmer waters. If we could identify the genomic changes that are associated with that resilience, we could then transfer those using the same technology to other populations of corals that are less resilient. And these are the types of applications that I really see as ex extremely exciting potential for this same technology. Hey. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where this week we're looking at the mysteries of forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. How about us? Will we go on forever? Well, no, almost certainly not. Of course we're going to go extinct because every species eventually does, just like everybody eventually dies. I am Alan Wiseman. I am a journalist and author. Our time as a species is numbered. There are a number of possible ways we could go. Let's say that the AIDS virus, which now has passed through fluids, mutates and is suddenly airborne. And it's homo sapiens specific. So theoretically, all human beings could catch it and disappear within a year. There are other ways, of course. Climate change could make our planet uninhabitable. A supervolcanic eruption could see us go the way of the dinosaurs, or we could obliterate ourselves in a nuclear holocaust. But what happens next, once the dust settles on a human-free world, is where it gets interesting. What would we leave behind? How long would it take for nature to wipe out our traces? And what things would last the longest and keep acting on nature? If you want to know what that might look like, you could take a look at Chernobyl, the site of the 1986 nuclear power plant disaster which left a 19-kilometre radioactive exclusion zone free from humans. I was there in 1993, six years after the reactor fire, and even then, ironically, it had become the most biodiverse place in all of Ukraine. Wildlife had re-entered. There were wild boars, there were wolves, there were nesting birds. Some of the animals there, for example, voles, these little rodents, even though they're living abbreviated lifespans because of the radioactivity, they're putting out bigger broods than usual. And this is kind of nature's way of responding to a dramatic change in the environment there's the possibility that one of them will be a little more resistant or maybe have some fortunate mutational gene that allows it to tolerate radioactivity a little bit longer. And this is kind of the way that evolution has always worked. The ones that are the most resistant and the strongest, they're the ones that are going to carry on life. 
Alan wrote a book, The World Without Us, which explores what would happen if the Earth was suddenly a humanless place. And he started in the ultimate human habitat, a big city. He started with New York. It's hard to imagine that a place as solid as New York City, you know, it's this concrete armored shell. How could it possibly be taken down by nature? Well, it starts in the soft underbelly. The subway engineers have nearly 800 pumps going at all times to keep water out of the subways. So what happens when human beings are no longer there? Well, for one thing, the power that runs the pumps goes off. The subways start to fill up. You stand on platforms in the station and there are tall columns that are holding up the roof. Those columns are made of steel. Within 20 years, the steel will corrode enough that they will buckle. And for example, the famous four, five, six subway lines in New York that run underneath Lexington Avenue, when they fall, Lexington Avenue will revert to what it once was, a river again. Birds will fly over and they will drop mollusks or they will drop fish like little herring. Then suddenly those rivers will have life in them again. There'll be water around and it'll run into little cracks that have appeared and then it'll freeze again at night and those cracks will widen because ice expands. Seeds will blow in during April. Then weeds will be growing out. When one of those seeds happens to be a tree, like the Ilanthus tree, which is all over New York City, you will find them suddenly pushing apart sidewalks. A seed will lodge in between two steel plates that are holding a bridge together, and the next thing they know, they've got tree roots that are pushing apart the George Washington Bridge. Couple that with the fact that no one is keeping the sewer drains clean. They'll be clogged with things like plastic bags or leaf litter that's blowing in from the parks. Within three years, you're going to start having all this plant life, first weeds and then actual trees, starting to sprout in the gutters and in the sidewalks. And within a hundred years, you're going to see a forest starting to come back within 500 years that forest is going to be competing with the ruins of all these buildings that have been coming down. Buildings that will last the longest are the oldest ones because they were made with stone. They were made with a material that's already part of the earth whereas the concrete that we use right now is much more susceptible to nature and water wanting to bring it back to its original material, which is sand and lime. A few human artifacts will have survived. First of all, anything that we have buried, the channel that goes between the UK and France is buried in a single geologic layer and it'll probably still be down there. Oh, I, I should add one other beautiful thing that we've created, bronze sculpture, bronze being more than 90% copper, which is a, just a single element. That's going to be one of the last vestiges on the surface that will show the grace and the beauty of human culture. 
As Jan explained earlier, thanks to our love affair with plastics, even a hundred million years after our extinction, there'll still be traces of us deep within the rock strata. But even that, eventually, will be destroyed. Within about five billion years, the sun is going to expand and it will first fry everything alive on this planet and then it eventually will turn the earth into a cinder. But even the destruction of the earth won't destroy all traces of humankind. After the earth burns, though, there are currently right now, they've just left the solar system, a couple of spacecraft, the Voyager spacecraft, that were launched from the United States in the late 1970s. And each of them holds gold-plated records. They're like old LPs. And on them there are hundreds of images of human life from all over the planet. There are recordings of music from jazz and symphonic music to indigenous chanting. And who knows, those spacecraft may survive and some cultures someday may find them and realize that somewhere in a little solar system around a forgotten sun called Sol, uh, we were here. So, when all life on Earth is gone, burned up by a dying sun, Traces of us will spin on through space. Which leads us to the biggest question of all when we're thinking about things that go on forever. Space itself. Our universe. The great infinite. Does space go on forever? Will it last forever? It's a, it's a funny question because it is infinite in the sense that at the moment it's expanding as it goes along. So if you were at the edge of the universe, it would be expanding forever, so from your point of view, it would appear to be infinite. But, I mean, the basic answer is that we don't know. What we think is happening is that the universe is expanding into nothing, that there was nothing there, and the universe is sort of creating itself as it goes along. Um, so it's kind of expanding into itself. It's, yeah, <laughs> my brain hurts too. <laughs> My name's Dr Sheila Kanani. I'm a planetary scientist and a teacher. I've been passionate about space since I decided I wanted to be an astronaut when I was 13. Uh, haven't got into space yet, but it's certainly my retirement plan. So the universe is about sort of 14 billion years old, 13.8 billion years old. The distance is about 46 billion light years because the universe is expanding. So even though it's only about 14 billion years in terms of age, it's actually a lot bigger because of this expansion. It, if you could stop time, there would be an edge. But because it is expanding, there isn't an edge because we can't kind of measure it. So I guess imagine like if you're sitting just inside the skin of a balloon that was being blown up you wouldn't ever quite see the edge because you'd never quite catch up with it. And as long as that balloon is still being inflated, you'll never catch up with the edge. The Earth is part of the solar system. The solar system is in the Milky Way and we're just one of billions of billions of galaxies that make up the universe. We have some ideas about how things are going to end as well. We probably won't be around to find out. Perhaps the universe will continue to expand forever and eventually everything that does exist, all the matter and the galaxies and the stars and things, will be so far away from each other 
that the energy will dissipate and everything will just kind of freeze. There's an idea called the big crunch where eventually there will be so much matter that gravity will cause everything to contract again in like a, an opposite to a big bang but a big crunch. There's ideas that also link into kind of multiverses or sort of multiple universes. Maybe our universe expands and then contracts into a big crunch and then that causes a, a new big bang and there's a new universe that is created. But again, we don't know. <laughs> I've heard an analogy where you kind of have a glass of fizzy water and you're looking at a bit of this fizzy water. There's nothing in the water other than the water. Then suddenly a bubble appears and then equally as suddenly it pops. And that could be what is happening with our universe. There's not just one bubble. There's lots and lots of bubbles. And each of those bubbles is a universe doing a big bang and a big crunch. So maybe it's not that we're coming from nothing and expanding into nothing. There's, maybe there is something there, but we just don't know what it is. The only way we can kind of understand it is by talking about it like there's nothing. Because these concepts are quite hard to visualise, we try and use analogies or props quite a lot when we're teaching. My natural thing to talk about is the solar system. I'm a planetary scientist by trade, I guess. And I like the solar system because it's so much more tangible. We've got spacecraft sending back real pictures. We've got bits of moon rock. You know, there are things you can see and touch. But the problem with ideas about Big Bang and the edge of the universe and all that kind of thing is that we just, it, it's so hard to comprehend that we definitely need analogies and props to make it a little bit more accessible. I mean, I don't think I even really understand infinity properly. It is quite a mind-boggling concept. I think as a human being, you know, our brain capacity is only so big. And for me, cosmology and, and Big Bang and Big Crunch and all that is kind of like, um, it's, it's kind of spiritual in a way. Like, we don't really know. You can use all the maths and all the physics in the world to try and rationalise it. But the more questions you ask, the more questions are created and then you just end up in a big tangle of questions. Like Sheila, like most people, I find it almost impossible to get my head around the idea of infinity. In fact, any really big numbers send my brain into a kind of meltdown. A 300-year-old oak tree feels humblingly ancient. A deep-sea coral, 4,000 years old, is pretty difficult to really imagine. How could we expect to be able to grasp a number like the age of our planet, 4.6 billion years old? When we talk about forever, we really only mean something that's bigger and older than us. Older than we can usefully imagine. So, from my perspective, the oak tree, which has been around long before I got here and will be here long after I'm dust, might as well have lived forever. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. I'm Emily Knight and I hope you'll come back next week when we'll be turning our eyes to the skies with stories about animals and humans who take to the air. Till then, if you'd like to continue the adventure, why not sign up to our email newsletter? All the latest stories and videos from BBC Earth delivered direct to your inbox. Sign up at bbcearth.com newsletter and never miss a moment. Stay. 
Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus.